everything is fine. I know, okay. They're conditioned to lie, and, and they don't know their body, you know. Right. So I had a, I got a starting offensive lineman. You know, he's a huge dude. And I'm starting to move him around. You know, he's uh, standing up, and I'm moving his shoulder like in an internal external rotation position. He's making all these faces like I cut it to with a hacksaw. And I'm like, okay, dude. Dude, that should that's not normal. You should never have to make faces like that when you're just doing passive movements like this. I was like, so now I'm right. gonna ask you again, like if you have to make a face of any kind, we will define it as pain. Okay? So now <laughs> yeah. as I'm moving you, do you feel your muscles in your face starting to change position? <laughs> Are they moving around? And he's like, Yeah and I'm like, dude, that's pain. I think what happens sometimes, especially guys, are are you know making old man noises. You you see, on, on, get, just get off the couch. <laughs> it's like, all right, no, you're not really too good. If you can't yeah, get yeah. off the couch, I'm making a noise. <laughs> you know, you, you've got some problems going on there. Yeah. Well, there's uh, a lot of stuff that can be done to help people get out of pain. Um, I don't know if that's maybe another time you want to focus on some specific yeah, sure. things sure. about that. Uh, but the the rule is basically one pain-free rep, and that rep, you know, would be appropriate. So let's just say if you took like a back squat, you know, years ago, you always talk about you hear full range of motion, and what we would modify today, it's pain-free full range of motion. And that could be, you know, if you can only move two inches pain-free, Clearly, there's something wrong. You got to be able to move more than that, but it's a place to start, and then we would figure out what to do from there, and then we would buy. Well, well, I think it's a mistake to follow all these what people feel are immutable laws of training, where someone says you got to do full squat ass to the floor, otherwise yeah. it's worthless. And that person's yeah. five foot four, <laughs> you know, with sure. short legs, and then they're telling me someone <laughs> six feet tall, long legs, how I should be squatting. Like, look, man, not everyone has your body type. People often look at what they're good at, and then they're surprised that everyone else is not as good as they are. They're like, come on, this is easy. It's like, yeah, for you, because sure. of different factors. Yeah, any, um, I'll tell you where I saw a lot of very, uh, like, a lot of insight was an advanced um, anatomy. Uh, it's advanced human anatomy uh, course uh-huh. where we're dealing with cadavers, and what the instructor did that that was very clever is he had. Um, he had different body types that, so you could just see, like, as you're dissecting these cadavers, you could see there's yeah. differences in the bone sizes and the structure. Like, you know, when you think about it, you got a guy that's five feet and you got a guy that's seven feet. They have the same number of vertebrae, right? But how's how, how one? So one guy's vertebrae got to be way, way bigger than the other guys, right? Or like they have, you know, they have a femur. And I actually had a, one of my buddies was a shot putter when I was in college. And one day we had this anatomy class together, and I realized his humerus was bigger than my femur. <laughs> Think about that. Like, no matter what I do, his bones alone are going to be heavier than me. <laughs> and these are the kinds of weird things that you realize. But what I saw was uh, one of these uh, advanced anatomy workshops is they showed you the angle that the different bones, let's say like your femur, goes into your acetabulum and your hip. So for some people, um, neutral or let's just say like a healthy position might be their foot excessively rotated because that's the angle of orientation of their femur. And other people, based on the angle of orientation of femur, their feet perfectly straightforward would be a a healthier position, if you will, for foot placement. 
when's the last time you've seen a coach look at anyone's pelvis or see their hip angles or anything like that to yeah. figure out people should squat? So what, what tends yeah. to happen is people go into a movement pattern with an expectation of how it should be done without understanding, um, you know, well, i got to modify this for my body. Yes, you know I mean? yeah, starting like, instead of just starting like, okay, let me see where they are right now and work backwards from there and then see where we end up. Instead of see where they, st- see where they are now and work backwards to get to where I want them to be. You know, what, sure. I, what I see how it should be. You know, so. Right. Yeah, very interesting. So, um, what else do you guys want to finish talking about some of the other topics or how are we doing on time? Well, we're doing pretty good on time. We can we don't want to keep you on all day, of course. We know you have things to do. But what about some of the breaking through training plateaus? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, we can get well, into that and, too. well, I'll tell. First thing I'll say is, um, when athletes come in here, um, one thing that I, that I think what happens is they hear about like crazy weights I lifted when I was competing. And so their expectation is, like, I'm going to teach them how to set a world record on the spot by, like, either modifying their technique or showing them, you know, here's a secret how to bench press more that no one's ever told you before or something. Right. And then when we actually, you know, get them here and start working with them, um, typically what I find is there, there's a high degree of threat. So they're walking around so tight, they're extremely overtrained. And so the last thing I want to do to anyone is say, all right, you're overtrained, so now I want to do even more to further overtrain you. You know, so that's, yeah. it's, not, it's not a healthy approach. So what tends to happen is usually I wind up doing things like, all right, let me teach you how to relax. And they'll be like, oh, I, I know how to do that. I'm like, okay, well, show me because I want to see this with my own eyes because yeah. if you knew how to do it, you should already be doing it because it will help you. And I end up the you know, I want to just I make the example that a tight animal can't move fast. Any animal that has a high degree of speed in nature, you watch, you just see they seem almost like they're falling apart, but when they have to move, they're like a lightning bolt, and they can move extremely yeah. fast, like a cat would be a good example. You may not even see muscles in a cat. Also, once it's ready to move, the muscles bulge out through its skin, and it looks shredded. But prior to that, when it was so relaxed, you didn't see anything sticking out. And so these are the kinds of things that help people, you know, maybe conceptualize things better. So I usually well, I mean, I'll, give, I'll give you another analogy back to training. The bubble sausage it's a high-tension approach, right, where you really tense up the body, squeeze every muscle before you lift the weight. And I found that is an okay strategy for someone who is brand new to training because they don't have the control yet. But if you want to move, you have to move past that technique mechanism if you want to excel. Because like just like you said with the animals, when your body's really tight, you can't move a weight quickly. If you can't move a weight quickly, that's going to limit how much you can actually lift especially if you're doing repetition work, that tightness is going to dissipate your energy very quickly. Yeah, and it's just, um, I think, you know, I think what happens is we condition ourselves so that we're used to being tight because of the either speed of contraction, the load we're trying to lift or something along those lines. Right, right. So that kind of mentally, it's like this is normal as opposed to, well, you know, feeling relaxed and supple, you know, is is normal. Um, 
Yeah, I, I like medical. It, well. it may be cosmetic as well. Like sitting in front of you know people that train in front of a mirror. You know, when you sit there and look all tight, it looks like your muscles are ready to go. You see your muscles. You see the, <laughs> right, the right. stuff that's supposed to work. But if you look that's relaxed, right. you look like you're not ready. <laughs> you know, so it's a it's that's a exactly psych- right. Psychology game. Yeah. You tighten up, the veins are popping out. You see all the definition. Like, yeah, I'm ready. Out. I'm amped. I'm, yeah, you know, you're right. you know, you're ready to go. I always say that what what I'm working on with kettlebell presses, for example, is generating maximum power from a pretty relaxed state. So I'm using pretty heavy kettlebells and just generating power from a relaxed state, which allows me to not only move the weights faster from point A to point B, but you don't fatigue as quickly because you're not all tense up. I mean, how long can you sustain tension? No one's going to run a marathon the way you would run a sprint. And even sprinters are loose and relaxed, moving as fast as possible. They're not squeezing their fists and tightening up their legs and trying to run as fast as possible. Yeah, you know, you're feel- restricting oxygen. Right, that right there is a problem. Restricting oxygen yeah. to get to those muscles no that need to fire up. Yeah. Exactly. When, I, when we used to watch, um, when I was in the uh, biomechanics lab years ago, we had a lot of high-speed video of all these, uh, let's say, world record or Olympic sprint performances. So you're recording these guys at you know 70 frames per second or more, in some cases more. Mm-hmm. And what I was amazed at is now you, you know, you're watching this thing, let's say, in slow motion. And see how relaxed their jaws were. It's just like floating all over. Yeah. It's bouncing around like a ball from left to right, <laughs> and you it, like it didn't look like it was connected. That's a good to the rest point. Of when, you're, when you're an amateur, the first thing you do is clench. You clench down, and right? And you down. and you make a face, right? You make a face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think a good, good rule of thumb. I think a good rule of thumb that people, if they're going to pick up one thing from this episode, I think a good rule of thumb is your face says it all. When you're lifting a heavy right. weight. You shouldn't show tension in the face. If you're if you have mastery, I mean, you're not going to be maybe as relaxed as a Buddhist monk, but you shouldn't be making that snarl face like, where your teeth look like should, they're about to explode out your mouth. You know, shouldn't look constipated, man, like you're on a preparation <laughs> instrument or something. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 Thomas, with when you deadlifted 900 pounds, obviously you can't be totally relaxed doing something like that. You have to brace against the weight and so forth. But was that something you consciously did before you lifted the weight, or was it an automatic reaction to lifting the weight that you tensed up as much as you needed to? Yeah, well, uh, first let me say, um, you know, some guys off the ground were way more explosive than I was. Like, I would watch guys yeah, rip. no doubt. They, they would rip 700 pounds off the ground like it was a toy. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe 400 pounds I could, but once it got heavier than that, like, right. in my mind, I'm moving as fast as I can, but to everybody else, it's like, that guy's slow, <laughs> you know? But the weight would still move, and, and one of the That's things... My like, experience. That's my experience as well. If I do a maximum deadlift, it's, I'm trying to move it as fast as possible, but anyone watching is not going to be like, oh, wow, look how fast he's moving that. It's not coming. I, I've worked on that technique of trying to rip it off the ground as much as, as quickly as possible. It just doesn't seem to work for me. It just throws me out of sync. Well, when I observed, let's say, mechanics of myself that and versus other guys, one thing I noticed is that real explosive guys were able to maintain certain joint angles. So they would set up, drive right. against the ground, if you will, with their legs. And as they moved, they basically moved really well through their hips. Right. And in my case, I probably had damage in my hips, you know, a long time ago and just wasn't aware of it. And so while never going to have that great movement through the hip because, you know, my left hip was probably ready, you know, at least the process had been started. So what I I focused on was how to get in position 
and how to basically build up a high rate of tension of force before I started moving. And okay. I felt like that got me to the point. So it wasn't like I was trying to stay in one spot, but essentially what I was trying to do was drive against the ground and pull against the bar without letting my hips kick up. And yeah, so what yeah, happened exactly. is it, it kind of it was a slower start but when I started moving the bar, it kept moving. Like I didn't get exactly. stuck where I was overextended, you know, once the bar passed my knees, let's say my shoulders are too far forward or something. Yeah, I call that acceleration versus explosion. Yeah. So basically yeah. the bar is going faster. It may be slow out of this gates, but it's, it starts moving faster as you get going from all of the power you're generating, as yeah. opposed to someone where it's more one gear where they explode, where the bar looks like it's bouncing to the knees, and then they're pulling it to the lockout. Yeah. When I've looked at, um, I was on, I was look, uh, watching this uh, Netflix video the other day on this powerlifter from Great Britain. My gosh, I can't remember. It was a shorter guy, and... Uh, he, he, he's one, I guess, number four in the world. I guess this would have been 2015 or 16. And they were showing him deadlifting over a thousand pounds. And uh, it was interesting because some of the taller guys were faster off the ground, but then they slowed down at the top, where he was kind of the opposite slower at the bottom and then faster at the top, you know? And uh, they're kind of reminding me of, of the differences in styles like we were just discussing. So, in terms of the, uh, we want to get back to the uh, the training plateau stuff. You know how to break through the training plateaus or something different. Let's talk about training plateaus for a little bit. Then we can just wrap up there. Maybe ten, yeah. fifteen minutes. You want to talk about it, and then we can yeah, well, we can save everything say, else for another episode. So, um, main thing is, um, so we do right now breathing drills and mobility drills, and then we have people incorporating that throughout their workout. Uh, simply because it maintains the mapping of the brain with the joint. And some things to think about, let's say if I have a guy and I'm standing upright, I have him then extend one leg behind him. So let's say he extends his left leg behind him. So he's doing like a, a standing, uh, he's standing on the right leg, extends his left hip. So now his leg is straight. Have him do like a hip circle. So he's moving his leg in a circle. He can't see it because it's behind him. And now look at his circular pattern, and it looks like a zigzag, looks like a W, looks like, you know, a weird Z. It's not a perfect circle. So what that tells us is that his ability to map his joint in his brain is not very accurate. It's kind of off. That's a very simple movement, and yet somehow he's having a struggle with doing it correctly. Now let's translate that to trying to coordinate all these joints in your body for running, swinging a baseball bat, other things. And what you realize is that most people learn how to get an action. Uh, they learn how to perform an action by focusing on external variables. So they're going to swing that baseball bat and hit a home run, but they never took the time to develop the internal body, sense of body awareness to move everything precisely. They just figure out a way through compensation patterns how to get that baseball bat to connect with that baseball. Or it could be swinging a tennis racket or you know, any other device. Once we start taking people and teaching them how to test for discrepancies in right and left sides of their brain in terms of frontal lobe function, differences in cerebellum for balance, things in their breathing, their abilities in other areas improve dramatically. So I, I, I to test this, 
I brought in a bunch of my buddies. They're local, um, they're high school or junior high school strength coaches. So, so you guys come in, and I'm going to make a statement, and I want to hear your perspective on this statement, and then we're going to test it. I'm like, okay, okay, and you know, I know them pretty well, so of course they're busting on me and making fun of me and calling me all kinds of names. And so I said, all right, I'm going to improve your performance on the spot within one minute without any prior practice of the movement. And they were like, no way, F you, you know, typical stuff your friends would say. And so I was like, let's just pick a simple movement, you know, like we don't want to do something crazy, it's going to take hours. Let's just do like a plank. <clears throat> you know, how much time do you normally hold a plank for? You know, some guys 45 seconds, some guys a minute, minute and a half. And uh, then I um, said, all right, well, we want to get way longer than that, especially now because you're fresh. Like normally, like if you did a plank at the end of the workout, you're not going to be, you know, you expect you're going to be fatigued and stuff like that. But now you're fresh. Right. We expect a pretty long time. So I worked on breathing cadence. And um, a breathing cadence would be something like just... Uh, you would breathe in through your nose. It's hard to, like in a podcast, it's hard to demonstrate it because you guys can't see me. But let's just say you can have a rhythm. Sure. So you breathe in through your nose and the same rhythm. And it might be like three breaths into the nose, three breaths out through the mouth, mm -hmm. like the purse lips. Yep. And there's different. And you can do this. You can do this walking, sitting. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. you could also do it for maximal power development. And um, okay. once this stuff is, so think of it as like um, one breath. And it's like everything, every fiber in your body is going to contract to move something. And right. so the idea is um, when you kind of start going down this path about looking at breathing, what you come to the realization is that most people are breathing based on a habit, not based on a tissue physiological need. So they do right. something, they breathe heavy. Their, their tissue already has enough oxygen. There is no reason for them to be breathing heavy, but they don't know what else to do, so that's why they do what they do. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, when you start doing these breathing drills, people start doing setting all these records, like in these guys' cases. They're doing planks for over three minutes, and they're laugh, we're all laughing like little boys, you know, like, what the hell, dude? What'd you do? They always bust on me, and I'm doing some voodoo on them. And I'm like, dude... <laughs> One, it's distraction. You know, like if you're th if you're thinking about what you're doing, it seems longer than it really is, right? But if you were like right. reading a book right. while you were doing something, or you had to listen to like a podcast or music, like it doesn't yeah. seem as long, you know. Right. So we already right. know that right. that holds true for all kinds of things. Yeah. But in this case here, by just giving you something to focus on, your mind is distracted from what's happening with the plank. But also, it's easy for me to say, okay, you know. 10 more of these breaths, and you're like 10, 9, 8, and so it's like an easy thing to do um, in that regard. So everybody there set records on their planks, and uh, afterwards they were still making fun of me, of course. What, a, what, about, what, what about a legit exercise? Such as, like what? Such as, <laughs> like, give, me, give me an example. I mean, so... <laughs> such as, I don't know, deadlift, squats, yeah. and pressing, yeah. Planks are what I have some, some housewives never worked out before do. You know, yeah. planks is... What you can do, dragon flags and hanging leg raises, windmills, and other more difficult. Well, it's core funny you say that. So, so exactly what you just you know asked or stated was what um had this one athlete in, and I showed him this thing with planks, and like, how about a real movement? I was like, pick the movement. <laughs> it's your call. It doesn't matter to me. Um, yeah. I wanted to pick something simple because. It's something they've done many, many times, and they already knew what their capabilities were. It's a low skill, right? You know, there's yeah, not yeah. too much skill involved because you're not really moving. 
also, um, I had uh, someone uh, do this with deadlifts, set a PR. I had someone do this with snatches. And in a case of like a max PR for deadlift or snatch, for one, the guy hasn't worked out in years. He ain't walking in and going to do it, you know. So it's someone that's actually active. What I find with the breathing does is it helps them kind of get rid of tension in the body that actually interferes with the lifting mechanics. So I think in that regard, you do this right. You do this right before you do the lift because with the deadlifts, most I imagine do a holding breath technique at least until they hit this past the sticking point. Yeah. So kind of think of it this way. So um, there's there's no right or wrong cadence or pattern, but yeah. um, when I think of like the deadlift, well, I guess I should distinguish a deadlift for like a uh, like a single or maybe yeah. even a double. Yeah. That, that's that's versus, what I'm asking. Yeah, versus yeah. something like that's done for let's say twenty reps or something. Right, right. So the pattern so I would have for the purpose of a single maximum weight for one rep. Yeah, so the, the pattern would be something like uh, a breath in, and then you're so you're kind of like you're set up in position, a breath in, and it's like a pop, and it's a it's an explosive breath out while you're exerting maximal force and pulling against the bar. And then you play around with it. And then when I, some guys will say, you know, I feel better if I do two, like, inhales. Like, a, like they're basically snorting through the nose twice so they get right. more air in your lungs. And then do an explosive, let's say, pow sound as they drive up. But right, you play right. with it with your, te- mm-hmm. your, your technique or your mechanics and technique at the same time while you're doing this. And you start to find you move the bar faster. Because you're trying to keep move the bar speed to keep up with your breath. And if the breath is very short and quick, that means you've got to move quicker. Right, and essentially okay. condition your body to move faster. And over time, that movement pattern uh, carries over. So, for example, if you do the deadlift as fast as you can, there's a, a maximal velocity that you could move. Right. Once you're at that maximal velocity now... You still have a lot of force that you could, you know, use at the same time because your power, you have a lot more capability. So you may find if you move a single, like an unloaded barbell, say 45 pounds, you deadlift as fast as you can, you know, that speed is or that velocity is what it is. You may find you can do that same speed or velocity with 315 pounds. Right, right. So there the difference is the power at the end, you know, with a heavier load is going to be, you know, dramatically different. Well, as you start conditioning your nervous system because that, Let's say, let's just, I'm just picking numbers here. Let's say you move a bar that's unloaded, you know, a 45-pound bar as fast as you move 315 pounds. The stimulation effect of that 315-pound load on your nervous system is far greater. Oh, yeah. Now what you would do essentially like singles and doubles with very explosive deadlift, or it could be a snatch, or it doesn't matter the movement pattern. And then as you get that dialed in, you'll find that, one, you have to be... Um, let's say, in a very strong mechanical position to do what you want with good form. And right. you're going you're gonna to instantly learn how to relax. So this is where what I find is, like, you know, you could tell someone, hey, relax. And some people can. Most people can. So for people right. that can't relax, you might have them tense up. And then when they get fatigued, they'll relax and do what they do. And then you might have um, other people that neither one seems to work that well. But if you try to, if you teach them something else, 
they relax as part of the process to get better at something else. So it's kind of like right. an indirect way to teach them how to relax without drawing their attention to it. Because if you're yeah. focused on it, they don't produce the result that you want. And so you, you get stressed about now. Now you're getting stressed mm-hmm. about following the directions. Like, hey, relax. <laughs> right. More stress because someone's telling you to <laughs> right. relax, which is irritating. You know, if you're really yeah. stressed about something and someone's telling you to relax, that instantly gets you irritated, and then and then you get irritated because you, you may actually try to follow that advice and relax, so it's compounded. Or they're thinking. They're thinking like, trust me, if I knew how to relax, don't you think I'd be relaxed right now? I don't need you to tell me to relax, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, with a lot of these, uh, the assumptions that are made behind, like, say, some of these, uh, well, let's just say you're lifting anything off the ground, right. is that, one, it's easy to get in position. So let's say, for example, if someone has an issue with their knee or hip or some part of their body, yeah, they can't get right. into position easily, then yeah. I would first focus on how to help them that they can move in and out pain-free with no um, discomfort or, or difficulty. And then over time, yeah, and then these issues strong in that position. Sometimes you can get someone in the position, but they, they feel really wobbly and unstable in that position. You know, they can't generate power from that position. Yeah. Oh, and here's some, like, so here's some tools we've tried here. So as an example, um, say a guy's got uh, knee pain. Let's say he has no knee pain, and you know, before the workout, but now he's let's say deadlifting or doing anything or has some flexion or load through the knee joint well, and has a pain, you can just take a knee wrap and use it to create compression um, first on the same side as the knee pain, so basically at the top of the thigh. So not on the knee, you would wrap the wrap at the top of the thigh to, com- to create compression at the top of the thigh. <clears throat> and that compression helps send stronger signals. Um, basically, it kind of gets the nervous system to cue in a little bit more on that side. And a lot of times people say there's no pain there. Sometimes okay. what happens is we put the um, the knee wrap on the opposite thigh. So let's say you have right knee pain, we put on the right uh, on the left hip, and then huh. you, it's not designed like we're not trying to do this for a um, like a blood flow restriction training. We're just doing it enough so it basically gets the nervous system aware that there's something else going on besides the knee. Right, and then the they basically. Yeah, essentially, it's a distraction technique, if you will. And then they start to work out, and, like, my knee pain is gone. And so now right. the idea is it allows for a higher-quality workout um, without damaging the body. And Because uh, the assumption is if there's no pain, you know, you're not making anything worse. And then we would introduce maybe other techniques or um, ideas as far as, again, you know, when you're seeing someone, like, we might talk about something, but let's say if you guys saw me working out in a gym, you're going to see stuff I can't see, right? Because I can't see myself from the outside. Right. And so right. you would have different ideas versus just a casual conversation based on what you see at Definitely. that moment. And that's the same thing, you know, when like people come in and be like, no, I have no, no pain or I don't have any issues. And as we see them moving, I'm like, well, okay, then why is your knee going out so much, you know, laterally when you walk? Yeah. And like, yeah. Well, I've always had that. Well, so it, it might be normal to them now, but it, it may not be normal necessarily. It may not be healthy, let's say. And then we just explore what happens. Like, why is that going? <coughs> yeah, when when an issue when an issue with your body becomes the new normal, that's when it's very difficult to correct because you don't even realize it's a problem now. It's become part of right. your everyday experience. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. So I they, think it's useful to film. Film. That's why it's useful to film yourself doing exactly. various things as well. Exactly. I mean, most people do it so they can post it on Facebook and get a bunch of likes. <laughs> but the real, the real reason that you to do it is to see what you look like. Because a lot of times, I, I have an idea in my mind of what I look like when I do something, and then when I film it, sometimes it's accurate. A lot of times, it's completely inaccurate. I'm like, whoa, I, it doesn't feel like that. You know, like what I see is like, oh wow, I didn't realize I was doing that while I was lifting this weight. But sure. It's also helpful to know exactly what you're looking for when you film yourself, too. So if that's the right, case, right. film yourself and have someone who is qualified to find things to look at that right. film. Because a lot of times people film themselves like, well, look, it's, it's okay. Look at it. Look what my hips are doing. Like, nah, man, that's your right hip. Look what your left hip is doing. Okay? Yeah. You just can't collectively put both hips into this category when that left hip is dropping down like that. And they're like, well, oh, I didn't know it was dropping. It's also important yeah. to have an expert who doesn't have his or her own biases. Going back to yeah, before, that, where yeah, someone who's five foot four saying do full body squats, why can't you do full body squats? And he's talking to some guy who's six foot five, where even parallel is going to be a challenge. You want to have someone who can look at that and not say that what you're doing is incorrect because it's not exactly the way he or she does it themselves. Yeah, you know that um, reminds me of two things. One is that. Um, over the years, what I've realized is that I cannot coach myself because I'm always gonna. I'm always in my mind. I think I could do everything, so as a result, I just beat the hell out of myself. And, and uh, even after 49 years, I still make the same mistakes. So I have now have other guys that do my design my training because they're not emotionally invested in it. You know, they're like, do what I say, and you'll get results. If well, the only problem with that. that is, you know, you know what my experience is with that. Because I've heard that saying from various people before. I think Charles Staley said it once. He goes, "You're you're always going to be your own worst coach," <laughs> and I can understand a lot of people fall into that. I think the less well calibrated you are, the more true that saying is. But here's the thing: is I've I've worked with a variety of coaches, and I've gotten good results from different people, but I've always found that. I design the best programs for myself, whether that sounds arrogant or not. And the reason is, is because I've been training so long, I know what my body responds to at this point. So if I'm trying to improve my one rep max in a squat or deadlift, I know doing lots of sets of five for me is not going to transfer accurately. Even lots of sets of three is not going to. I have to be more precise. I'm not one of these guys who gets these magic transfers which stuff where I focus on kettlebell overhead presses and that improves my bench press or my barbell military press. It's, it's different enough, the technique, that... I have to be more precise with what I do. So I, I, I haven't found a coach that has ever accurately, accurately assessed this in me. Generally, they have their own preconceived biases themselves. They're going, okay, here's what I know works for everybody. I was like, this is what you think works for everybody. And usually it's something that worked well for them. <laughs> you know? Now they're trying to project that onto you. And you may get results with that probably because it's different than what you're used to doing. So it's a different stimulus. But it's not going to be as precise as someone who's more well calibrated designing a program for you. And frankly, I always tell people you need to get to the point where you know what works best for you and you don't have to ask other people for advice. You know, you've been working out for 20 years and you're still asking, you're still hiring trainers, you know, you're still doing consulting. I was like, don't you know what works for you at this point? I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, there's always that challenge of, um, certainly, you know, we, um, there's, so we've evaluated training programs that are commercially available to clients because we wanted to see like why is it so many people come in and they have so many glaring errors with their right, like, like right. dysfunction like you would expect 
if they're working with a competent professional. And this is not just like personal training. This could be physical therapist, athletic trainer, maybe some other type of, uh, you know, now there's guys that claim they're posturologists and all kinds of things. <laughs> you would expect that, you know, they're, that, that someone would have caught, you know, this this problem because it's glaringly obvious, right? Like you don't have to work out right. Right. Um, and one of the things that I noticed is that all these programs are just there, and then you walk to the door, and it's like, here's your program. And right. it kind of makes sense from the facility perspective because you're managing labor. And, you know, if everybody's got one of ten possibilities they're following, you don't have to learn and teach a lot. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to learn right. stuff because you're already going to do the same thing. And, you know, that's so similar to medicine, though. I mean, think about yeah. How many people are diagnosed with a terminal illness, and before they they go to a center or a facility, and before they ever get there, they already got the treatment waiting for them, which of yeah. course means yeah. it has nothing to do with their unique dis, you know disease issue. Not it's personalized at all. Yeah. Right. It's the same thing for right. everyone. So there's certainly those challenges. Like when I looked at well, uh, I mean, research, everyone has an inherent level of laziness, right? Especially people who have been doing something for a long time, where they're not learning anything new. They're just repeating the same experience over and over again. So they feel like, okay, I know, I know this topic. I don't need to research it anymore. So anytime someone has that problem, you're using often what's antiquated information or knowledge to address that. And then you're like what you just said, Thomas. You're doing a, a generic protocol too. It's like, oh, you need to lose weight. Okay, we're going to have you do this diet and this exercise regimen, regardless of who you are. You know, so every single person who comes to you who wants to lose weight, you put them on the same diet, <laughs> same nutrition. I mean, same training regimen. Just categorically across the board, which is which is why so many people get such poor results. You know, if, if generic programs are only going to work so well. Yeah, and you know that's kind of where I think certainly, you know, people aren't going to get maybe the best possible result. Um, you know, when that kind of thing's implemented, what um, what I was getting at though that so let's say that would be one extreme, but the other yeah. extreme would be maybe where we tend to fall into is where. You don't know your own boundaries, you know, like uh, I, I can't sure. tell you how many times I would do, like, I like the feeling of lifting really heavy stuff. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I did that for maybe 30 years of my life. So then because I'm so, let's say, uh, intrinsically connected to that sensation or that stimulus, that's not really healthy for me. And let's say right. let's look at my left hip. So having someone that's competent that could say, all right, you're not looking good doing this movement. We're going to change the movement entirely, like not do it and do something else. Right. That's right. definitely a benefit. Um, but where I was going at earlier about, um, you know, using um, video recordings and stuff, you know, one mm-hmm. of the interesting things we found is that uh, when people are recording themselves, there's almost like uh, an aspect of them that's uh, performing. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, so yeah, in a way, yeah. like you mentioned about the guys recording stuff to get on Facebook likes and stuff. Or are you recording it from a certain angle, which you know to be more favorable? You know, right. Well, was, I, well, I was just. Uh, go ahead. I, I, just, I don't. I don't want to get sidetracked. There's a funny story. Uh, maybe since there and I can talk about it after you're gone. But go uh, ahead. Sorry. No, but I just was meaning that what happens is, um, let's just say there's there's it's there's no um, alternative motivation. Like a guy's actually recording himself right. uh, for his own purposes. You know, not for Facebook yeah. or anything. But the fact that he's doing it. 
that biases him in a way to either worry about the quality of the recording, so now he's not engaged in lift per se, uh, right. or he's thinking about making something like, I want to make sure my technique looks good. So essentially, the, the problem is there's a cognitive impact of this recording that affects... Right. It's better than it would normally be if you wasn't recording it. You're, you're or, more or worse, right? Because it could go either way, you know. But okay. so it, it works better when you're doing what you do, and then someone else is recording. Like not that you want people you're to not spy on you, it, but right? yeah, but you don't want to be <laughs> cognitively yeah. engaged, you know. I see because you there's sure. definitely some altered movement patterns uh, that can happen. Kind of like kind of like reality TV, right? It's like, oh, I'm sure the cameras being there doesn't affect the way you act at all, you know. Right. That's what, well, that's why it's well, especially joke. yeah, I think that the camera, you know, well, plus the, the these reality shows, they're coached to basically yeah, that's trying right. to get a reaction out of them for prior basically, to the recording. Am- amateur amateur actors and actresses essentially. Is what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was, uh, um, there was. Uh, uh, I went into this event and we encountered, let's just say, a lot of people from this reality show, and I was uh, surprised at how quiet and just let's just say like average they seemed in real life sure. compared sure. to how they were on the show, and I was like, wow. And then they would tell me, oh yeah, they. They have like these prep meetings that kind of like like they had they, they kind of get things going. So it'd be like, you know, let's say you and I are gonna be on the show and they're telling you all the stuff I just said about you behind your back. Now they're right, telling you all the stuff right, you just right. said about me behind my back. So yeah, yeah. they're creating they're confrontation. They're creating right? artificial scenarios too, because I mean if if it were really reality, it would be boring as hell. I mean think about your think about if someone just filmed you doing whatever you do in a normal day. That's gonna be boring for anyone else to watch. <laughs> Right. Now you have to create all these scenarios that are over the top that never happen. It's like, oh, you just happen to run into this person at the coffee shop, right? You know, she just happened <laughs> to be there as you walked in. You know, yeah. Yeah. So out of all the Starbucks in the world, she had to come into mine. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> yeah, and you just happen to have a falling out with her recently. You know, it's just something like these, these <laughs> right. situations that never happen in the real world. So yeah, 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 you have to force these circumstances. And then it seems like everyone is coached to act like an idiot. Like, that's the trend. Like, we want you to have this overreaction. We want you to be a fool. Like, the worse you act, the better it is for television. Oh, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> well, so on the um, – one of the things that I wanted to – I guess it's, we're using a deadlift a lot. Let's just maybe kind of run with that. Okay. You know, we do a lot of um, – so in neurology, uh, a mirror joint, for the lower back would be the neck. So basically, lumbar spine, merge joint, be the cervical spine. So right. when we have people that have uh, pain sometimes, or even um, athletes that are tight, so let's say they say, you know, I have no pain, but you're just watching a move, and they're a really good athlete. When they walk, you see um, really good energy transfer from, like, from the ground through their body across their hips. In an athlete that has different types of dysfunction, it almost looks like their lower body and upper body aren't connected together. You know, it's kind of like the legs are moving, but the upper body is it doesn't move at all, or it's kind of moving not quite in the same rhythm as you would see. And um, a really good example, there was, uh, by the way, a good example of analyzing gait is the Olympic gold medalist. Uh, what was that young lady's name? Was it Simone, right? And, Simone Biles. Uh, yeah, so there was a video 
where they showed her throwing out the first pitch in a baseball game. Oh, that's small. Okay, yeah. And she comes out walking, and her um, her gait was absolutely terrible. What it made me realize is that this is, you know, the, the main base, best gymnast in the world, right, at the, at the time. And um, you can have that such a high level of dysfunction and still win um, a gold medal in the Olympics or multiple medals in the Olympics. So then yeah. how do you interpret that? In other words, did she have to have that dysfunction in order to do well and get a gold medal? Or did, you know, is it just a glaring problem that was ignored because our coaches don't do any gait analysis, you know, of any kind? Right. Like, if you're just watching someone, you know, do backflips all day, you're really not worried about how they're walking, you know, or if they're going yeah. around on these parallel bars mm-hmm. or, you know, the beam, whatever. So yeah. Yeah. it's really difficult to interpret that. But what we do know is that mechanically, the force is transmitted through the, there's a lot of extra torque on the lower back, and ultimately there's going to be rotational forces, and, you know, it's going to be the hip, the knee, the ankle. Like, one of those joints on either side of the body is going to take the beating because the forces right. have to go somewhere. They just, they just magically disappear. And I've seen that a lot over the years where I've seen these guys that do incredibly well, you know, in their sport, but you see them outside, and there's some glaring issue that's going on. And so right. one of the things I, I would try to figure out is how do I correct that problem without drawing their attention to it? Because the reality is they could be like, well, if it's holding me back, how am I still performing at the level I'm performing? <clears throat> and I'm looking at it from forces transmitted throughout the body and how it's going to create long-term damage. I'm not simply looking at it, well, how does this gate right now affect their ability to move in their sport because I know some people have a switch and when they turn on the switch they do well in their sport and right. when you're outside the sport you're not dealing with the same person I mean a good example would be Ray Lewis um, you know when he turned it on I mean he was feared you know but yeah. outside you know you're just talking to an average guy yeah <laughs> Yeah. Except he could run through you. And that's you know? that's a that's a lot of athletes. A lot of MMA fighters are like that. You meet them; they're the nice guys, nicest guys you'll ever meet. And then when they're in the ring, they they unleash the beast. Man, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's like, whoa. Like, okay. well, when, you, when you think about it, that's healthy though. You don't want them to be like they are in the cage in everyday life. You know? Well, it's tiring to be always on anyway. Yeah, you know, exactly. No matter what you do, exactly. you know, you just exactly. you don't have the energy for that. It's just, biologically, it's just no not going to happen. You're going to work yourself out. Sure, but think about though, if um if they're coming in to let's say get a problem solved, let's say they have some orthopedic issue, really yeah. I'm dealing with two different people, right? The guy in the yep. ring, let's say, or the guy in the sport is different than the guy that's outside the sport. And they say guy right. could be man or woman. So I had to figure out ways to kind of get rid of inhibitions or issues in a nervous system, but um that would carry over. In other words, whether they were in or out of their sport, it would still apply and help them. And so one of the things I started exploring is these concepts of, uh, like, you can almost think of it as, like, flossing nerves or nerve glides and then uh, circles of uh, the neck. And so an example would be, so let's say someone's standing upright and they're going to try to touch the ground with their, let's say, their fingers or their palms, depending on the level of flexibility or mobility through the hips. And let's say they go and they can't get past their knees. 
this is obviously someone that's you know there's something going on here. This is a uh, this is not normal. You should really get further than that. And you try them, try stretching, doesn't work. So there's something else going on. So we try breathing tactics or breathing strategies, and that gets so much range of motion improvement. I've tried then neck circles, where they're basically um, essentially loosening up their neck, and that sends reflexive mechanisms or activates reflective, mechani- reflective mechanisms in their lower back, and now they can get more range of motion. And what tends to happen is when they first start it, it doesn't hurt, but it's very uncomfortable for them because they've never done it before. Yeah. And it raises the, it makes people aware of your your brain accepts what's normal, stuff you don't do. So in other words, um, or whatever pattern you're, you're reinforcing. So if you come home every day and sit on a couch, that teaches your nervous system not to move. So if you you know, come home from work every day and you do different things and explore your body like ankle circles, neck circles, things like that, hip circles. Yeah. The brain gets better at moving the body. So it doesn't have to be crazy loading, it doesn't have to be a sprint or running, you know, or a cycle, you know, bicycling or anything. But just simple movements like that over time result in someone that moves better in all like in running or other movements than someone that just comes home and does nothing. And right. So part of the strategy then would be to figure out how to incorporate um, these movement patterns, uh, let's say beginning, middle, end of the day, or in a way that keeps your nervous system engaged. And when that's done, what I could share with you then is it does not matter what the MRI shows uh, most cases. So people typically come in like, oh, my MRI shows I got this you know, jacked up, whatever. You could fill in the blank yeah. with a joint. Yeah. And I'm like, well, the problem with that is the MRI just shows you a structure. It does not show you anything about the state of your nervous system. And right. so right now, you're explaining your problem with only one little bit of data. Why don't we see what's going on with the rest of you, and then you tell me how you feel about this MRI after we're done. And 100% right. of the time, they realize, wow, the MRI had no value at all because I could do everything I want pain-free now. And we know yeah. the structure didn't change. Whatever damage was there before, it's still there. It would be just, it would be like getting testosterone measured, but that's it. Nothing else. Not estrogen, not free testosterone, not DHEA, not pregnenolone, not cortisol, none of the other factors, just yeah. liver ends, kidney function, just testosterone, and then going and basing a strategy just on that number. Right, right. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, so then um, from there, then, you know, we could start looking at how to get more things involved um, in terms of uh, systems in the body and stuff like that. Um, One of the things we've been moving towards is uh, more and more we do, um, we focus on single side, like one arm training, one arm, one leg training. So one side at a time, Uh, not for example, so we moved away from a lot of two-legged or two-arm movement patterns. And simultaneously, we'll do things where, let's say, you might be doing like some sort of uh, push, let's say almost like the equivalent of a cable or a band uh, bench press motion, but you're standing, so you're kind of doing a chest press motion. And then with the opposite side of the body, the opposite hand might be doing a rowing motion, or it's got a heavy load that it's kind of pulling back on, like you're going to start a row, but you're not actually moving it. 
And the idea is because those sort of opposite movement patterns, if you will, they connect better with the brain as far as the functions of the brain, but allows you to also test and compare if there's discrepancies in terms of your nervous system ability to control the opposite sides. And as we go through this, we'll see huge discrepancies. Like, you know, a guy could um, display huge ability for force on one side, and in the same movement performed on, the, let's say, right versus left, on the left side, he's maybe 50%. So that's a significant discrepancy. Like we would right. expect them to be within 5% or less. And so then we figure out is what's creating that discrepancy, and we bias their training where for maybe two to three weeks, they're doing whatever they need to do to address that weak link. So, for example, a guy might train left side only. And so traditionally the way people approach things, let's say we'll pick like a bench press or a deadlift as a, as a you know, reference movement patterns. They'll, you know, bench with both arms, like a barbell bench press or deadlift with a barbell with the expectation that by doing this cycle, you know, progressive loading of some pattern, they're going to get stronger at the end. But the assumption is that both sides of the body are being controlled the same way by both by the opposite sides of the brain. To right, you know, there's no imbalance, if you will. When we find that there is an imbalance and address an imbalance, that same person comes back and he's way stronger than ever before, which means that he's had that imbalance for most of his life or a good portion of his life and no one ever uncovered it. So examples would be like little kids running around hit their heads. Now they got something going on, but you can't see that from the outside. It's not that glaringly obvious. So right. they're benching. The bar straight is nothing that appears out of normal. So no one's going to say, oh, you need to do more work for left frontal lobe or right side of bellum. No one's going to say that because there's nothing they've done to specifically find that. <clears throat> so now when they come in and we tease that stuff out, you know, it kind of comes up with a very weird training regimen, if you will. And then, but two or three weeks later, now, same guy is benching or squatting or deadlifting more than he ever has in his life. And they're like, how the heck did you know this stuff? And it's like, actually, I didn't. I learned it from other guys. And then I just brought that here. And, uh, you know, we just keep learning stuff from other places and, you know, expanding on what we're doing. So, but it's, um, it's you know, so the point is um, sometimes the fastest way to your goal is not the linear way, you know, which is like I'm benching and I'm every week going to add weight. Like some people, yeah, yeah, they exactly. actually may be faster by not benching at all and doing one side only. Yeah. But, you know, you would have to know that and then you would know if that makes sense to do it or not. Yeah, so that's very sophisticated information. Yeah, well, but it's um, very, very interesting information as well. I mean, I can see how all of this would be beneficial. It's just, it's just going to. This is going to take a very motivated person to go down this road, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I hear stuff like this. It sounds great. I was like, you know what? I could get a lot out of this. <laughs> the average person is going to hear this and say, "That sounds like a lot of work." I'm just going to do nothing. <laughs> well, you know, you, you raise a good point, though. So, like, think about. Like, you know, from the, from the time you could remember, you know, planning a strategy of any kind to, like, say, now, how many uh, times have you said to yourself, hey, I want to do it, and then you never actually do it for whatever reason. It doesn't matter, you know, because something more important came along, and now you can't do A because B is matters to you more. 
And well, you so, just realize most of the time those are things that you don't really care about. Like I was, I'm reading yeah, these guys. You weren't as, in, yeah, you weren't as interested. As you yeah. No, you just you just realize real quick whether I mean you try something. You may think I, I want to be a rock star, so you start playing the guitar, and then you start trying to book a gig, and three people show up, and you know you get up there and bomb, <laughs> and then you decide you know what this is not for me. While someone else who really wants to push through, that's just going to be a learning experience. They're going to be like, okay, this is where I'm at right now. I'm going to keep going. That's someone who's really committed. While the first person who gives up after that experience, that's someone who realized it wasn't for them. So a lot of times when people give up on stuff or they never get started, they didn't really want to do it. They just have to be honest yeah. with themselves. Well, you know, that's something that intrigued me about human behavior. Like, so you do something, like your example, so three people show up, another guy does it, and you decide, I'm not going to do this, right? It's not for me. But another guy does it, three people show up, and he goes, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try harder. You know, like where's the switch between the two people? One guy's right. ready to go off and stop, and another guy's gonna put more effort into it. And um, I've seen this. Like um, I've had the uh, you know an opportunity to work with people with um, all kinds of weird issues. Like uh, they touch an electric line, and one person their arms got blown off. Another person wow. stepped on electric line, legs got blown off. Mm. And let's just say. Mm. People have had, they've been dealt with some serious challenges in life. And yeah. when I look at what they've been able to accomplish, and now I compare that to, you know, family and friends that they've never had those challenges and they're still not doing anything. And right. one of the things that, right. stuck, that stood out for me is that, you know, in, uh, in, in various cases where people were able to overcome something that's pretty serious, you know, I mean, think losing one arm is, or even a finger is a big deal. Both arms are oh, like, yeah. low, you know. No doubt. They approached it like, all right, there's a solution to this. I just got to figure it out. Like somewhere right. in their head, right. they didn't accept that that was the end. Like there's just, yeah. okay, I got to I gotta walk around this. I'm going to go left instead of right or something in their mind. And right. that's the one thing I, I thought, like in my mind, I would I kind of labeled all these guys as champions. And that's just for me to put a term that I could. Well, I think, I think successful people all have yeah. one thing in common. They're very good problem solvers. Oh yeah, like for it, sure. That's, that's, and you do it whether it's designing a program or building a business. You're solving problems, and you're very good. And you get and the better you get at solving these problems, the better your results are going to be. The faster your business is going to grow, the more successful it'll be. The better, the stronger you're going to get in the gym. Most people, they work out. Anything works, right? The first time they try working out, you know, anything you do is going to give you some results because you're starting with a clean slate. And then all of a sudden, the results are going to slow down. And then they're going to come to a screeching halt, which is where the majority of people give up. They just decide, right. okay, this is as far as I'm going to go. <laughs> you know? And then while people that are problem solvers, though, want success, they're going to want to keep going. They're not going to be discouraged by that. They're not going to say, okay, I, I went from 100 to a 225 bench press. And to get to 315 is going to take a lot of work and problem solving. I don't care to do it, so I'm just going to stop here. While the other person's going to go, no, I want to bench 315. I want to bench 400. I'm going to keep solving problems until I get there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, well. It's interesting to understand why, because I think people coming from different backgrounds, like imagine a child that's in a negative family environment, and they're kind of oh, told, you know, you don't matter. You're never going to accomplish anything. Yeah. Understanding the behavior aspect of these these things, like you know, what makes some people you know work out harder or or figure out a solution as you used. Um, 
versus other people, you know, kind of succumb. Using that example, and I wouldn't recommend this to anyone, but sometimes that makes that kid defiant, where it's like, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. It's like, F you people. I'm going to get out of this environment. I'm going to prove all these naysayers wrong. Obviously, you don't want to roll the dice and, and try to use that reverse mechanism to try to get someone motivated, especially a kid. But sometimes that's what happens as a result of that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, which is, I mean, you hear stories of athletes that have, um, you know, talked about uh, where they came from and how that actually helped them to get to where they are now because you know, that's similar. You know, reasons you explain. Well, sometimes but, when I'm working out, right, I, I play little games with myself where I'm about to do a max, and I start making people around me the enemy, even though they probably aren't. You know, it's just all in my head, but it's useful for what I'm about to do. So I go, okay, I'm going to max this right now, and then I just, I just visualize people around me watching and just waiting for me to fail so they could be like, ha-ha, that guy couldn't pull it off, right? You know? And then I just use that as fire. Like, I'm going to lift this. I don't care what happens. I don't care if this bar breaks my back in half. Once I grab that bar, I'm not putting it down until I lock it out. And then you kind of look around with this satisfaction. You have like this scowl on your face, like, F you guys, even though no one, no one around was probably hoping for you to fail. It's all in your head. But be that as it may... The results are still the same. You, you pull, it, it gave you a little extra angst to pull off what you were trying to do. <laughs> are you guys familiar at all with uh, Dr. Fogg? He's the behavioral scientist from Stanford. Are you familiar with any of his behavior models or anything like that? You can't say that. No. And you can't say I've ever heard of him, so, no. Well, so you know like how you hear a lot of times, um, so like uh, 30 days, you know, you can make a habit type of thing. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I've been yeah. hearing that. I don't know for many years. And so, essentially, <laughs> um, Dr. Fogg actually studies this stuff, and and he shows that's not true at all. That um, there's actually I agree. a formula. With, you with, know, yeah. that is the research. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it. So in his formula, and this is part of what they call the Fogg behavior model. Uh-huh. It's basically behavior equals motivation times ability times trigger. And it's kind of at the same moment. And so the examples that, you know, people might use practically is something like um, if let's just say, uh, oh, let's say I ask you to stop working out and you might be, man, I love working out. You know, that, that's not a behavior you're going to do. But right. what if now your um, wife had a major illness and now you got to stay home to take care of her? You don't really think about working out now, right? Your focus is on taking care of your wife, let's say. So instantly, you can give up working out because something more important is going on. You know, that's something that matters to you more than, let's say, working out. And so that's what's kind of meant by the motivation times the ability times the trigger. The trigger would be, well, you know, sick family member, you know, and then the motivation is, well, you want to help her get better you know, or healthy or something. And yeah, you could go to the gym or not go to the gym. Like, you'd easily have the ability. The reason why I mention that is, um, you know, part of understanding how to help people that either have pain or we deal with a lot of terminal illnesses here. Um, the one thing I've I've seen over and over again is if I look at the research as a whole, that a lot of times people are focused on the treatment per se. So I'm going to take this drug, I'm going to get the surgery, or I'm going to get you know do this exercise regimen. And because they're so focused on this one thing, they don't have any contingency plans when it doesn't work. So it's kind of like all their eggs are in one basket. And in the end, if they don't change their behavior, the treatment 
tends not to work anyway because they simply won't stick it out. So an example would be um, yeah. we have someone that's dying and like, you got a lot wrong with you. You need a lot of pills. There's no way to get this type of nutrition into you without taking these pills. And then people would say, well, I don't really want to swallow pills. So they're almost, since they won't change the behavior, and they don't have a, let's say, a dysphagia. They don't have any trouble swallowing anything. So they simply made a choice not to, you know, take something. So it begs the question, well, do you really want to get better, right, if you're not willing to change the behavior? But we know now we can um, ask people basic questions up front before they, we ever do anything treatment-wise with them. And we already know if they're going to get better or not. And uh, part of um, some of the stuff that's come out is, you know, if people aren't capable of changing their behavior, then the exercise, the diet, the supplements, the medication, the surgery, that does not have as much impact, or in some cases, it's never going to work. So, for example, if you want to lose weight, but you're never going to work out, you're never going to change your diet, well, it's going to be a really rough road in terms of losing yeah. weight. Yeah. And I, as, as basic as that might sound or seem, it's the most overlooked thing that, um, you know, for people when they're trying to engage, they're trying to make a change in life. And simple things like, hey, I, I got to, okay, I'm going to start working out. I'm going to do this New Year's resolution. And I'm going to start working out every morning. And then when they come in and they go, how's your workouts going? I go, oh, I missed every one of them. I said, okay, well, let's look <laughs> at this. When do you have your highest level of energy? Well, at night. Okay, so then why did you schedule your workouts in the morning when your energy is low? Like, that'll never work, right? Because it's going to be tough for you to mentally do it when your energy is low. Like, strategically, it might make sense to structure your workout when your energy is at the highest because you tend to be more motivated then. But these are things that oftentimes are not thought through because it's not a full strategy. It's kind of like, you know, we talked about earlier someone's going to get a program and it's the same program everyone else got. So there's no yeah. real strategy. It's just, here's what we do, you know, kind of thing. Right, so right. I share this because it, it ties into, well, it ties in nicely rather with, you know, how certain people um, that, that are able to create these solutions to the challenges they have, essentially they just figured out how to change their behavior in a way to allow for this other stuff to happen. Like, I mean, I talked to this uh, one woman who had no arms, and she's like, oh, I'm just going to figure out how to drive the van with my feet. <laughs> I just thought to myself, this <laughs> right. sounds so bizarre. And sure enough, she had her van set up. She could drive a vehicle with her feet. She actually has, uh, she could get a foot up to the steering wheel. Like, But at the time, it just sounds I mean, so when, bizarre. When you, when you think about it, when you think about it, that's the, the healthiest reaction you can have, right, is you go right into solution mode. You yeah. go, this problem, I have this problem now. That means I'm going to have to change these circ, I'm going to have to change my environment to keep moving forward as opposed to, oh, this sucks. You know, I can't do anything. Oh, I wish I had this back. You know, you can't do anything about that. So you, when you think about that, that is the champion mindset, as you said. A problem comes your way. You find a way to move forward, blast right through it as opposed yeah. to a problem comes your way and you get demoralized and you get beaten down. You start complaining all day long about it to everyone that'll listen, which is what most people do. Yeah, yeah, but that's um, uh, part of the uh, process now that we're doing is we're we're trying to introduce uh, you know questions and stuff to help people kind of figure out where they are in their journey because everybody comes in saying oh I want to get better, but then you say like well, you've been dealing with this for twenty years, <laughs> you know wh why hasn't this happened? And you know I mean unfortunately it's it's really sad that um, 
We see lots of people have had surgeries that I believe were necessary, but from a psychological perspective, I'm never going to tell a guy. Sometimes, sometimes oh, people have motivation. They just don't. They're just, they're just not getting the right advice, right? Like they're motivated. They want to make these things happen. They're not getting the results, but that doesn't mean that they're not motivated. They just haven't found the right strategy or they haven't gotten the right advice to get them to where they need to go. Yeah, for sure. Well, especially, you know, in um, orthopedic cases, you know, you're going to see a guy that does surgeries. So it's rare that he's going to give you a solution that doesn't involve surgery. Exactly. I was just giving someone that same exact advice the other day. You go to a surgeon, what do you think they're going to say? Go to the chiropractor? (laughs) They're going to say, you need surgery. Well, in the the oncology world, about 100,000 to 1 million people will die each year in the United States because they got the wrong treatment. Um, so right. it's not that there wasn't a solution, but, you know, they got a diagnosis like breast cancer. They go into a center, and a center is going to do whatever they do. There right. never was the approach to figure out what that person needs on an individual basis. And this is, right. uh, you know, it's well documented, like New England Journal of Medicine and some other prestigious medical journals have drawn attention to this disconnect. Like, why aren't people getting the right um, the right treatments that they need? Because they're available. It's not like it, no one's heard of it before, no one knows how to do it. It's like right there, but yet the guy got the wrong drug or something. Well, so, unfortunately, the way our medical care system is set up is that no one is encouraged to put in the time to develop that personalized approach. It's more of a cookie-cutter approach. You go to the doctor, you're going you're gonna to wait longer in the waiting room than the amount of time that you're actually going to see the person. So you may be out there for an hour waiting to get in. You get in and it's five minutes. It's a quick glance at your blood work and a couple of pills and you're out the door. Next person comes in. So that's the problem there. I always say like if I ever came down with cancer, I would go to the best person available who has a very comprehensive, not just a comprehensive knowledge base, but someone who is on all the cutting edge of what's out there, what's available, rather than just doing the status quo mechanisms. I would I would never just go to the hospital and have some generic approach. Yeah, there's um so along those lines, you know, the standard of care, so there's like uh major medical journals that publish, you know, what to do once someone's diagnosed with like a stage four cancer or they're put on hospice, things like that. And the standard of care many times is to make the patient comfortable. It's not to treat the patient or help them beat this disease or like right. terminal cancer. Right. So a lot of times people are shocked when they go to a hospital and the family members are like, why is anyone doing anything? And all they're doing is like a morphine drip and nothing else. Right. And it's because the legal medical standard, if you will, is make them comfortable. It's not try to figure out how to kill off the cancer cells. And so for most people, Going into the hospital is maybe not the best approach. It's really going to be where they go to die. But yeah, exactly. It's not what they're told on the front end, right? They're the hosp- hospice way. situation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to try to fight this, but it, it's, it ends up being more we're just going to manage your eminent death as opposed to we're going to show you how to beat this or we have helped other people beat this and we're confident we can help you beat it too. Now, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear someone say, hey, I've helped a lot of people beat this using a variety of different approaches for each person, we're going to help you beat it too, as opposed to, eh, we never really have much success, but this is all we know, so we're sure. going to put you on the same protocol. Yeah, do you, do you guys um, on the podcast, like, do you guys going to do any video or have any, uh, like, can uh, images be shown or anything? Like, 
Is it just purely mm, audio, like an MP3 yeah, file? Yeah, purely, yeah, purely audio. audio at this time. Yeah, because there's um, some really cool technologies that, uh, especially in the cancer treatment side, that we're um, we're doing right now. Like there's um, that light stuff I was telling you about earlier, the fiber optics for your joint. There's actually this cool stuff where um, we use a patented form of curcumin from uh, UCLA, UCLA. Uh -huh. And basically, uh, it's been proven to reverse beta amyloid plaque, and these yeah. are people that have Alzheimer's. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Versus things for people with Parkinson's, and it's been shown to be very cytotoxic to cancer cells. So it's, it's uh -huh. basically the best form of curcumin you can get, period. Well, then this other group out of Germany shows that you could use basically a wavelength of light that it, that's excitatory to the curcumin. So essentially, the cancer cell takes up the curcumin, and the curcumin is going to kind of blow up the cancer cell on its own. But then when you stimulate the curcumin in a certain way with this colored light, it's like a specific wavelength, then it's basically like cooking cancer cells. And so they have these really cool photos where they show you where they put these fiber optic LEDs. Like there's like someone has a big tumor. They put the fiber optic LED in the tumor. And everywhere the light goes, there's no cancer now. It's healthy cells. And so there's like these, you know, spaces of like, there's like this big tumor and now there's spaces of no cancer within the tumor. So essentially you're making, they call that interstitial treatment. So it's like you're putting the LED lights in different spots in a tumor and there's like a certain radius that'll kill stuff. Like it won't, um, in that context, it's not going to treat cancer in the whole body. So if you had cancer, it was metastasizing. You would actually put those LEDs in different blood vessels and use your actual blood to as a transport mechanism to kill the cancer cells. <clears throat> so it's cool pictures. So I got to see at some point if I can uh, get this on my own site. Maybe we just tell people, "Hey, go click yeah, exactly. pictures or something." That would be cool. Well, it's that one of those good. things that. Um, well, I was gonna say it's one of these things like there's so much stuff that is available right now to help people, and yeah. every single major oncology center is not doing it. And you're like, okay, right. why? And then I can go over the reasons why, but it, maybe it's a good topic for another time or something. Yeah, I was going to say, let's leave this as somewhat of a teaser for the next time you come on. That'll whet people's appetite a little bit, and next time you come on, we'll just make that the sole focus of the show. Yeah. So do you guys get like uh, questions from people after a podcast? Like, it wouldn't normally happen, so you run this thing, and then what we happens? We do, after? but those those are ignored and deleted, generally. Okay. <laughs> All right. So are, they, are they just like the guys being knuckleheads, or are they just like guys? That no, we, so we get some good questions. I mean, but if, someone, if someone, emails, someone emails me and asks about you, I direct them to you. Mm. I'm not going to answer. Yeah, exactly. Let me go yeah, ask yeah, you. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then well, I, no, I want but, them to hire you for your consulting exactly. services, too. And not getting more free information. You, I mean, you got two and a half yeah, hours worth left on this, on this episode. You yeah, know, exactly. so now it's time to now it's time to pull out your wallet and you know and get more specific information directly to you, and not yeah. just a general podcast audience. And that's what they need to do. Well, that's why I always I always CC you, Thomas, you, as you've noticed, whenever I recommend someone to you, so that you know that I told them to hire you, pay you for your services as opposed to me directing someone to you, and then they may say, oh, yeah, Mike said that you could help me out. <laughs> and you're like, oh, great. Now Mike is telling these people that they can come to me for a free consult. You know? I always make sure that, yeah, you need to pay him for his consulting services. He's not going to get on the phone for you with you for an hour and just answer all your questions because he's a nice guy. 
So yeah, we get we get questions. We get a fair amount of questions, but if well, it's I mean, if it's something directed towards me, I answer. If it's something that's directed towards the guest, I refer them on to the guest. Well, where I was going with that is one, I appreciate you guys referring people to me, uh, but what I was uh, thinking about is like. You know, let's just say if I were to talk about breast cancer and there's no women with breast cancer listening, you know, that's not going to have a big impact. But, but someone in their like, life, someone in their life has breast cancer, though, right? Yeah, trust so me. They, yeah. Nine times out of ten, they're going to know a woman that's probably been affected by breast cancer. It's like, hey, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so especially considering, I mean, breast cancer has uh, gone up over the years. Oh, right now, it's the number one cancer, right? Exactly. But what I was Believe thinking, me, of, any cancer you talk about is going to be relevant to someone, yeah. okay. and if, even if it's not relevant today, it may be relevant at some point. So, pancreatic cancer, prostate mm-hmm. cancer, whatever it is, it's all useful information. Okay. So I was we, thinking well, that if there was something, well, just that if there was, uh, let's say if you had someone either uh, like one of you guys as a family member or friend as a specific cancer, I would just then kind of share some stuff specifically for that. So it's a little bit right. more, let's say, focused, if you will, because as you might imagine, it's a really broad topic. Oh, yeah. Why, why don't you pick one or one or two that maybe maybe one or two cases you've dealt with? You don't have to give the name, of course, of whoever you've helped, but maybe yeah. someone came to you with pancreatic cancer, which is one of the most aggressive ones that people often say you're not going to come back from. So if you have an example of working with someone with pancreatic cancer and what you did to help that individual or breast cancer, prostate cancer, we can kind of leave it up to you to maybe bring up case studies of people you've worked with and how you helped them overcome it. Oh yeah, absolutely. That'd be that'd be pretty cool, I think, because um, I think uh, just one, um, the successful outcomes we have were amazing. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, inspiring. But two, it, it's fun because, um, like, uh, this past uh, Christmas, we got a call from a family where imagine it's going to be Christmas time, and you get this news that you're going to die. You get this terminal illness that isn't responding to treatment, and you know, as you might imagine, it's pretty stressful for a family when their younger daughter gets this diagnosis. No doubt. And, um, you know, we were able to show them, hey, it's not the end of the world. Um, and we actually created a treatment protocol where the family could treat the daughter at home. So for Christmas time, she's spending time with her family as opposed to being in a hospital. So we, there's some, like, amazing resources that can be made available to people. That's great. Uh, yeah. It's, I'm, it's gla- I'm glad you're bringing I'm glad you're bringing it up for my own personal benefit, to be honest, because exactly. I always told you yeah. that if I ever had some issue like this, I would be on a plane to Switzerland, you know, where, In a where I, you know, I told my wife to stay. No, I could just go to Arizona because you're there. You know, I don't yeah. have to go that far. <laughs> it's a shorter, shorter plane ride. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, um, it was, uh, as always, it's a lot of fun talk with you guys. I hope that uh, people listening pleasure. got some uh, value out of this so information. Much, so much good information. I mean, no one... No one, no show delivers this kind of detailed information like what you're delivering. So it's great to have guests on like you. And where can people find out more about you? Your, your website? Are you on social media? So, uh, so right now, what I would tell people is if they go to um, our new site is called Causenta.com, and that's spelled C-A-U-S-E-N-T-A. And essentially, um, I don't know if you guys knew this. I got like 600 websites and. The problem we ran into is that it was too much information and it was confusing people. So it's kind of like yeah. you want to find something and you're lost. Like, okay, where is this guy really at? You know, so it almost looks like it's not real, if you will, because there's so right. much out there. 
So we started trying to make it all right, one, it's kind of like one doorway to make it really easy for people to get exactly what they need where they don't have to try to, you know, surf the entire web and Google a million times just to find something. So the site is up. Um, it's far from perfect. There's still some messaging issues and, um, there's still some links that maybe are broken, but that's where people can kind of get started on the process. Our phone number is there. They can contact us. We can get taken care of. And then essentially we can advise them from there. So, I would, you know, um, we offer a free consult to everyone. So, essentially, they could oh, schedule a call, get started. They pay nothing at all. And the reason is I'm extremely confident in what we're capable of doing to help people. And right up front, like, you know, just quite honestly, you know, people have uh, not every, not every facility is the right fit for every person. So, for sure. example, if someone needs to fly in and they can't travel, we're probably not going to be able to help them, right, because we need them to come here. Um, but yeah. in other cases, if someone just has, like, some basic needs, you know, and he just wants help with something, then yeah, we can easily consult with them over the phone. But, you know, my, my personal focus is um, I'm very driven to the intellectual challenge of helping people that um, just that other facilities have said they cannot be helped. So I like that, you know, that that aspect of helping people with uh, things that, let's say, the, the incurable, if you will, or the people that, you know, medicine says there's nothing that can be done. And I like proving, you know, everyone else wrong. I find that very rewarding. Yeah, well, that's, that's a good quality to have in someone that's providing the services that you're providing. That's certainly what I would look for. So that's great. Yeah, we'll make sure to refer people your way. Thanks a lot for coming in. We'll schedule you to come back another time when it's convenient for you to focus on that cancer topic and get into some of the case studies, successful cases you've had to just to share. So I think that'll be really interesting. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much again, and you guys have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you very much. Right, Take bye-bye. Care. <laughs> that was a great episode. Thomas, I mean, he delivers so much high-quality information. I always have to go back and re-listen to every every time he's on myself because there's just so much depth there. Yeah, so make sure to support him and make sure to support us. Use that coupon code LLA. Go get 10% off all the products at AggressiveStrength.com or MikeMahler.com and you know, New Warrior New Training Warrior on your side. Yeah. Exactly. And then sign up for exactly. Patreon. You know what? We have thousands of people that listen to the free episodes. And then we have like 115 listening to the premium episodes, and that needs to change. Otherwise, we can change yeah, by just not doing this. Sh- we can change by just not doing the show at all. You know, if that's the kind of response <laughs> we're going to get, if basically saying, you know, we don't care to support the show, guys. We're just we just want the free info, and we don't want to do jack in return. So, I mean, if, if that's the message, then fine. <laughs> we'll just do nothing in return as well to return the favor. How about that? <laughs> Other than that. Hey, man, you just got about damn near three hours of good information. So it's the least you could do. And on that note, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, done. I'm multiple <laughs> friends. <you know? laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. We're good. Peace.